y'all. I've stepped in a lot in church before, but this is my first time going through the swamp. So just, yeah. All right. Now, let's go ahead and get this out of the way. If by some chance that I step off of this, because y'all know I can't stay in one place, but if I happen to fall, stumble, tumble, whatever, no, it's not an act of the Spirit. And yes, you are allowed to laugh because I'm going to laugh too. It just is what it is, okay? It is what it is. Now, Here's what we need to do. Go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John. We began this study last week. It'd be easier if you got your Bible. Start at Revelation, the very end, then work your way back just a handful of books, and the book of 1 John will be right there. Now, coming off of 1 Corinthians, coming off of the book of Jonah, we began gaining a better understanding last week of what it means to have true fellowship. Fellowship, a word that's often used in the church. Most of the time, we said last week, it's referring to a big, huge, giant meal and hallelujah for them. But we understand that it means something more when we use the term fellowship in the Bible. It's evoking an intimate closeness. And John highlights what we saw in 1 John chapter 1, the fellowship pipeline, if you will. Here's what I mean by that. God the Father has fellowship with God the Son in the Trinity. They are distinct in persons, but of the same essence. There is a closeness. And God the Father desires a fellowship, a closeness with His creation, with His created people who are lost, who are separated from Him because of our sin. But because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, He is our bridge to building a fellowship between us and God the Father. And for the rest of the chapter, we saw a parallel. We were given a contrast between walking in the light, what it means to walk in the light, and then also what it means to walk in the dark. And we do so one way or the other according to the Word of God. And that's where we pick up today, starting in chapter 2 and verse 1. We're just going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to take our time going through the rest of it today. We'll hit about half of the chapter. So here we go. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Verse 3, This is how we know that we know Him if we keep His commands. Let's pray together. Father God, as we touch on sensitive topics, Lord, they come straight from Your Word. We pray in the name of Jesus that Your Word would change us, would mold us, would better prepare us for the world that's outside. God, we can do none of these things apart from You. We need You to do the work within us. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. 
Amen. First point of today. Like I said, taking it piece by piece. We've got to know the Savior. Know the Savior. Now, coming off of the 4th of July, I was reminded yet again, as I am every single year, of the remarkable life of George Washington. You know the guy, born in 1732, really came of age as a lieutenant colonel in the French and Indian War, went on to be a general, the highest ranking general officially now ever in United States history, and no one will exceed his rank in the American Revolution. He comes off of that and he presides over the Constitutional Convention, becomes the first president of the United States under the Constitution of 1789, serves two terms by winning unanimously, because who else? was going to run against him. And then after serving those two terms, instead of serving a third one, he willingly steps aside, starting a precedent for the future. The deeper that we look at the life of George Washington, the more that we can know about him through his speeches, through correspondence, through notes and journals of himself and others around him. We can start to know all kinds of fine, finite, fine-toothed details, like his teeth, even though they weren't really made out of wood. They are on display at Mount Vernon. You can go there and look at them today. Why you would, I don't know, but you can. You also learn things that he was an avid dog lover. Of course, he had hunting dogs all the time. He even named one of them, this is my favorite, Cornwallis. And if you understand why, that's really funny. That's really funny. But anyways, at the end of the day, George Washington died in December of 1799, a mere 188 years before this young whippersnapper was born. And I could study the life of George Washington from now, every waking moment until Jesus comes back. And even if I did that, never once would I be able to say that I know George Washington. I'd know all kinds of things about him, but I wouldn't know him. First John tells us that we can know Jesus Christ. And before knowing Jesus Christ, what John describes to us is of the utmost importance that we have to understand about Jesus Christ before we can know Jesus first. John clarifies, he's writing so that we, okay, the church or little children, again, this is written to believers, this is written to the church universal so that they may not sin. Now in studying this text, I found a great line. Believers understand that we are forgiven of our sins. We also understand that we will not be perfect until we get to heaven. And while we are here on earth, we will battle the flesh, the sinful desires that we still have. But understand that even though we have the ability to sin, it does not mean that we have to sin. Don't have to. You're going to fight it the rest of your life. But you don't have to. Here's why. We know Jesus to be our advocate. An advocate is a term, no matter what type of Bible translation you're using, if it is written in English, chances are very good that the term advocate was used there. An advocate is a mediator. An advocate is a mediator. And a mediator is what we need between God and ourselves because our sin has separated us from God. Without an advocate, 
All God sees is our sinful rebellion. So Jesus is the go-between. Literally, when you're reading in the Old Testament and you're so confused as to why you're reading the Old Testament and you get to Leviticus and you're even more lost than you were when you started reading Leviticus, Jesus is literally the smoke screen of incense from Leviticus 16, 13. I dare you go home and read it. It's the coolest thing ever. But while we stand before God in judgment, it is Jesus who stands in between us and God the Father as our advocate and says, God, I got these. When you go home and read that, that's going to really be a wow moment. It was for me. But because of the divinity of Jesus, this isn't the only role, the advocate that Jesus plays. This isn't the only role of the Son of God. Because He is the righteous one, He also, in verse 2, is the atoning sacrifice. That's what we read in verse 2, the atoning sacrifice. Now this is an umbrella statement. It's not real specific. And regarding the work of Jesus Christ, that means He accomplished through His life, death, and resurrection the atonement for sin. Now, this is where I like other translations a little better than even the one that I'm reading. This is where you get the real cool church word, propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation. Good way to remember this. The work of Jesus... The work of Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection, perfect life, death that He didn't deserve, and then resurrecting from the dead, it satisfied the wrath of God. Here's what we've got to understand. Our rebellion provokes a righteous anger from God. That rebellion cannot go unpunished by a just God. So in God's righteous anger, He must carry out righteous wrath. And because God loved the world so much, in verse 2, He sends Jesus to take on the full wrath of God. Spoiler alert, the only person that could take on God's wrath is God Himself. So if you needed any more evidence that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, for Jesus to say, I took on the sins of the world, He's got to be God in order to do that. So what do we learn then from Christ being the advocate and the propitiation? Christ's work, get this, is sufficient for all. It is sufficient. It is enough for the world. But it is only efficient for some. It's only efficient for some. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. From this text, it should worry us a little bit. If Jesus is more concerned with us knowing Him, then what we do, then we better make sure that we know that we know who He is. Better yet, let's be real for just a second. Nobody else here but you and me. 
Do you know Jesus? Mark's already asked, and I want you to think for yourself. How? How do you know Jesus? Is it because you've gone to church your whole life? Is it because you've read your Bible every single day? Is it because you can quote and tell me the day that you were baptized? That's not enough. And if it's not, we better read real fast and learn more. So let's continue reading verse 3 again, all the way down to verse 11. We've asked the question once, we're going to ask it again. This is how we know that we know Him, if we keep His commands. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and yet doesn't keep His commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly in Him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in Him. The one who says He remains in Him should walk just as He walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command which is true in Him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness. Walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going. Second thing we've got to understand, we've got to know the commands. Jeff Foxworthy has made a career out of identifying people who might fit into the category of redneck. Think about it. For over 30 years, going across multiple generations, he has been enlightening people, people that thought they were very sophisticated, people that thought they were way smarter than they should be, yet being able to identify them and lump them into this small group of people through their behaviors, behaviors such as, you've ever had to finance a tattoo, you might be a redneck. If you own a home with wheels and several cars that don't, you might be a redneck. And if someone ever asked you to see your ID and you showed them your belt buckle, you might be a redneck. John here is giving us a description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus so that we may know Him. And in our time, it almost sounds like a bad comedy skit. And if you heard me and Dale a couple weeks ago, it kind of sounds like Abbott and Costello. Well, I know. Well, do you know or do you know, no? I asked the students this earlier. Oh, I know, no. Well, I know that you know, but how can you tell me that you know, no? But seriously, all joking aside, how do we know? I am asked the question all the time, Pastor Kyle, how do I know that I am saved? Simplest answer. You keep His commands. And there's evidence of fruit in your life. You keep His commands. And there's evidence of fruit 
in your life. Proof's in the pudding. Now, what commands? What does that mean? And this is where there's a caveat. This is where we've got to be extremely careful. Because if we just say, well, if you keep His commands, then very quickly this turns extremely legalistic and it becomes, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to dress this way, you've got to make sure you're in church this many Sundays out of the year, you've got to make sure that you show up on Wednesday night, you've got to make sure that you lock and unlock the doors, you've got to make sure that you're there on Wednesday night too, and sometimes you've got to make the meal, and sometimes you've got to make sure that other people make the meal, you've got to make sure to shut the lights, you've got to make sure to teach Sunday school this many years, you've got to make sure that this, we turn it into such a list of do's and don'ts, and it goes way beyond beyond what the Bible says. We turn into Pharisees so quick it would make our heads spin. So there's got to be some distinctions. First, we've got a baseline. Understand, we are never going to be good enough. You can never do enough good items to check off your list that are going to outweigh the bad on your list. But if the Holy Spirit has written the law of God on your heart, and because of the Holy Spirit living within you, if there is evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then guess what? There is evidence that you have been saved. If we now have the desire to keep the Word of God, there is evidence of salvation. Paul says it like this in Galatians 5. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Put it another way, John says, the one who loves Jesus, the one who remains or abides in Jesus should walk like Jesus. Continuing on in Galatians 5, to hammer that point home, to know if you have salvation or not, we should have the fruit of the Spirit. We probably learned these verses in a vacation Bible school, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, I skipped one, and self-control. My VBS didn't work. Listen to me. We make it difficult. But if you read all of that passage in Galatians 5, you either act in the flesh, and it gives a list of what's in the flesh, or you act in the Spirit, and people can say, yeah, the Spirit lives in you. It's either one or the other. Can't have it both ways. Verse 25 in Galatians 5, Paul says again, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. John says, keep in step, keep walking with Jesus. It's amazing how it's kind of like the phenomenon, and I'm going to have to do this real carefully, but if you're walking with someone down the road and you're in deep conversation with them and you guys are just talking and talking and trying to solve all the world's problems, before you know it, what happens? You start walking in step with that other person. You don't even realize it. You don't even know that it's going on because you're probably too concerned about the conversation. But you end up walking in step with that person. And more than likely, you start whistling and singing, do what diddy diddy dum diddy do. You, some of y'all get that, some of you won't, but that's okay. Now, here's the point. To know Jesus to have fellowship with Jesus, to follow what Jesus says so closely that you appear to be walking in line and in step with Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. 
John is saying it all the way back in verse 1. The closer you walk with Jesus, the less likely that you are to sin. And to say, get this now, to say that you walk with Jesus, yet your actions do not show it. Be crystal clear about this, because even John is where he's confusing in some other stuff. To say one thing, but then walk in another way is to be a liar, is to be a deceiver. And it's the same characteristic that he gives to those who say that as to the devil. John says it in, and, and Jesus says it in John 8. You are of your father the devil. This is to the Pharisees. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He, meaning the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Boy, that was harsh, wasn't it? To say one thing and to do the other is that right there. Well then, which command should we follow? Because Kyle, man, I'm in the Bible a whole lot. and Boy, I read a whole lot of commands that are in the Old Testament, a whole lot of laws that are in the Old Testament, but I don't see them in the New Testament. And I see some things that we do in church that they don't do in Old Testament church. But then they pick up some new things in the New Testament church. But why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Well, thankfully, let's narrow it down a little bit. This is where John may get a little confusing, but it is able to be deciphered what he means. He makes such a great point. He says, listen, I'm not making a new command. This is the command that you have known, that you have had from the very beginning. And if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, if you asked a Jew in the Old Testament what the most important verse was, he would say, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Beloved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. How important was this verse to a Jew? They'd have it on their doorpost, they'd kiss it as they walked in, and then they'd kiss it as they go out. This was what they rested on. This was the old command. And John says, listen, there's nothing new. It's been around, but Jesus has emphasized it in a new way so we would understand it better. He says, listen, if you want to love your God, then love your neighbor. Best way to show me love, if I'm God, love your neighbor. Cut and dried. If you say you love your neighbor, but you don't show it, my brother, my sister, you're a liar. And you're in the darkness. But to love your brother or sister is to love Jesus. John will come back to this again in chapter 3. But for now, let's dig just a little bit further. We've got to love, go figure, our brothers and sisters in Christ. According to the disciple that Jesus loved, this is our litmus test to know if we know Him or not. How we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so yet again, boy, that love is a tough word. And boy, this sure does seem to tie in a whole lot with what we just covered in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's go through it one more time. What is a biblical definition of love? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patience, 
kindness, not envy, boastful, or arrogant, not rude, self-seeking, or irritable. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, finds no joy in unrighteousness. Love brings us full circle, rejoices in the truth, and it hears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. That's love. And if you say, I can't do that, then you are not walking with the Lord. had two conversations this week regarding relationships. And in both, I tried to make a point to say, listen, to love someone like Jesus or for someone to see the Jesus in you, it means that we've got to love them in a way that's different from the way the world is going to love them. You know what that means sometimes? To love somebody is to have some real difficult conversations with them. To love someone is not to skirt it under the rug, say it's okay. That's how we do it in this family and in this house. We just don't talk about it. It might make the rug a little lumpy over time, but it's all right. We'll deal with it when it comes to it. No, that is not true love. Third part of understanding our walk is understanding our level of spiritual maturity. Knowing where we are in our spiritual walk. Let's take a look back at the text, verses 12 through 14. Here we go. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. And I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's Word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Third thing, we've got to know the relationship. A couple of weeks ago, Sarah Beth and I took our marriage ministry on a Wednesday night, took them through a game that we had created called the Not-So-Newlywed Game. The idea is sort of like the TV show, The Newlywed Game. It was to see just how well you knew your spouse by asking some very specific questions. Sarah Beth and I realized quickly that we didn't know each other as well as we thought we did, but hey, that's all part of it. Is it a true indicator of our relationship? No, it was a lot of fun and I had to do a lot of begging afterwards, but that's okay. Now, in a relationship though, in a relationship, we do this. To improve the relationship, we've got to take inventory of the relationship. And John here considers three different areas of spiritual maturity of your relationship with Jesus in three different parts. Now, John refers to those believers as children, young men, and fathers. And from every study that I've seen, he is using... For a universal church letter, he is using general terms that even though he only really specifically goes after the masculine, it is implied that the feminine is there also. Meaning, this is not just for the men, this is for the ladies also. Now, you have those that are children. 
Their sins have been forgiven on account of the name of Jesus. Obviously, they're young believers. They have just come to know the Father and have fellowship with Him. But they're spiritual babies, just developing and learning what it means to follow Jesus and follow His commands. Forgiveness has come to all believers, and they've just begun this stage. For us, we're going to go out of order of the text. I'm going to go next to young men. Young men. Those that are further developed and more than likely right in the middle of the fight. And it is mentioned twice in that text, 12 through 14, repeated both times, don't miss this, that they, the young men, have conquered the evil one. They have conquered the evil one. Why? Because they are strong and God's Word remains in them. Doesn't mean that they're not attacked by the evil one. As a matter of fact, it probably means that they are more attacked by the evil one at this very point because of their place, because of their faith, because of what they are enduring. But they are able to recognize the schemes of the devil. And one, they are also able to fight them off with the full armor of God through the Holy Spirit because it is God who is strengthening them for the fight. That's the young men. Then lastly, John mentions the fathers. They've come to faith just like the children have. There's no difference. But you read it carefully. Who are the fathers? Those that have come to know the One who is from the beginning. The fathers, the most spiritually mature, are living that deep level of fellowship. That close level of intimacy that we've talked about for two weeks now. They walk with Jesus. They know His commands intimately. And they've been transformed in their mind by the Holy Spirit. God's laws are written on their hearts. It has changed them. They have been transformed and they have grown wise in knowledge of the Lord and walk closely with Him. As we read and study this treatise, John sets it up in the first chapter and a half who his audience is. And if we call ourselves believers, we should easily distinguish ourselves between one of these three. When it comes to your spiritual growth, where are you? A baby, a young man, or a father? you don't fit into this picture, you should be even more alarmed. But are you a baby? Saved, but needing your hand held in every situation of life. Are you still throwing tantrums over issues and battles that aren't of a kingdom mindset, that don't even matter with what God is doing, but you're still hanging on tight to them. Unable to see God's greater picture in your life, looking for His kingdom and His purpose, you can't see it. Saved, but immature and lacking. Salvation may have become your finish line instead of the starting line that it's intended to be. 
Let's be real for a second. Is there a possibility here this morning at Grace Baptist Church that someone is sitting here that has proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ for decades and yet still spiritually your baby? It's a possibility. It's a strong one at that. What do we do? Well, let's wait and see. How about the eager young man? Stronger than the past? The reason that you're stronger is because you've developed through some experiences. You are ready to go about the business of God. There is a confidence in you and there's a confidence that the evil one is already conquered. Man, if this is you, then you know good and well that the world is going to keep throwing haymakers at you, but you know who you're like? You're kind of like cool hand Luke. You don't know when to stay down. And for some reason, you just keep getting back up and getting back up again. But somehow, unlike the movie cool hand Luke, whenever you stand back up, you're even stronger than you were when you fell down the first time because you're the one that's depending on God to endure you and give you strength. And what do you know He's continuing to provide? That's the eager young man. Are you like the father? Wise and unwavered by the times. More experienced even than the young man, but willing and able to give wise counsel to the young man as the young man goes about battle. Taking in the spiritual babies with as much grace and patience as you can muster. Continuing to find new ways to contribute to the kingdom, even if you're a little bit upset that you're not contributing in the way that you used to, and it's just because of age. Continuing to find joy in a sweet, close fellowship with the Lord. Please understand, this maturity goes backwards and forwards. Our seasons of maturity can easily give way to seasons of immaturity, especially when we have the thought in our mind that we've made it. Here's the main idea. Hopefully you can see it. If not, these notes are also on our website. They're also on our app. You can see them here. But get this, main idea. We are secured of our salvation by the current desire to obey the commands of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. One more time. We are secured of our salvation. Not by the past. Not by what we've done. But by our current desire to obey the commands of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Do not allow your measuring stick to be the past. Non-believers don't really care about when you got saved. They care more, if they're a non-believer, why and why you believe right now. If they want to know why you believe right now, if they want to know why you're walking right now, then I guess we better be walking in line with Jesus and in line with the Spirit so we can explain to them why. living the best life that we can, surrendered to Jesus Christ. So as we close, I'm going to ask the band to come on up. And I'm going to ask you again. Do you know that you know Jesus? Or do you know about Jesus? You can tell me about His life. 
You can tell me Bible stories of how he died and how he rose to life three days later. You can tell me about the first church in Acts. You can tell me about Paul. You can tell me about all the apostles. My friend, there are a lot of people that have this same knowledge that live in hell for eternity, separated from God, because to know Him is to be surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior. And it's not knowledge about Him. You've got questions on that. If you're unsure of your salvation, if you're unsure that you know Him, come talk to me. I'll be right here on the front row. Are you here today and spiritually, you're still a baby. No, you don't need to be baptized again. But understand that to know Him is to pray for revival in your life. To understand that your spiritual life has been stagnant, that you don't know His commands as well as you should, that you don't obey Him as well as you should. Spiritually, are you here and you're a young man? You're in the thick of it. You're in the biggest spiritual fight in your life and it is tough and you need to pray for strength and endurance. I guarantee you the Lord provides. Are you here today and you're the wise father? You've got a backlog of work that you've done for the Lord. You need guidance on what your next season of life will be and the work for the Lord that you will be doing. It doesn't matter the level of spiritual maturity. These altars are open. Make an altar out of your seat. It begins with obedience to God. To know Him is to surrender to Him as Lord and Savior. Will you be obedient? Will you follow His commands? Or continue to deceive yourself? Let's pray together. God, it is such a simple truth, yet it is so much more than that. So complicated. Father, we thank You for the assurance that we can know that we know. That evidence of our walk can be clear. That evidence of following Your commands can be clear. Lord, I pray now in the name of Jesus that through the Holy Spirit, as John 16, 8 says, that it would, that the Holy Spirit would convict of sin, convince of righteousness and judgment. For your glory, for your purpose. For those that are saved, that are in the middle of the spiritual walk, God, if they're babies, give them the milk to grow, to grow past where they are. If they're the young men, give them the strength and the endurance to fight. If they're the, the wise old men, continue to give them wisdom so they can impart upon those that are less than they are. Lord, we need You. We love You. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray all things. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to Grace Baptist Cartersville podcast. If you would like more of Grace Baptist Cartersville, make sure you check out our GBC Young Adults podcast. Also, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and our services on YouTube.